As the uh, pollings enter the sanctuary from their recent trip, recent cruise, we'll now have a sermon on envy. Um, What a perfect uh, reading that Kendall gave in the middle of worship. Um, I said, uh, she said, well, um, do you have any suggestions on something to read? And I said, "Uh, actually, something about the crucifixion would, would probably be, you know, helpful and and she, oh, I don't know what that means. And then wow, she pulled that out. So that was incredible. It was uh, an absolutely perfect thing to have in your head as we move into today's text. Um, and it's especially important, I think, this morning, as it is every week, but um, for me to say welcome to New Hope, uh, for the name of our church is crucial to the point of today's sermon. At this point, I will ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. For the wrath of God is, I'm sorry, this is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they were became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul then gives a specific example of why things, of how things have gotten so bad. And we pick up our text for this morning in verse 28. And even as they did not know, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors, of evil things, they are disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, and that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Sisters and brothers, all flesh is grass, and the beauty of our human flesh is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this, the word of our Lord, will endure forever. You may be seated. So I was in court this week. I uh, was pulled over last summer for driving on a suspended license that I didn't know I had (laughs) twice. Apparently, I had forgotten that my tags expired. It's all taken care of now. 
The entirety of my case lasted about a minute and a half before the judge sent me on my way. Ultimately, the reason that I was there was because of my own laziness. And I may have been persuaded to plead ignorance, seen as because of our recent moving of house, I, I didn't remember getting any reminder of the need to renew my registration. I might have been persuaded to ask the judge for mercy in light of that situation. However, that just didn't feel right. A few weeks ago, I heard um, an explanation of a point uh, that is often brought up apparently in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is the difference between vincible and invincible ignorance. So suppose that the Baltimore County government, wanting to raise some quick funds, decided that they were going to meet in the middle of the night and pass a law that required everybody that all motor vehicles must now stop on green and go on red. And if anyone was caught going on green and stopping on red, they'd be fined $100. If this happened to you, you could presumably, presumably go before a judge and claim ignorance, saying not only did I not know about this law, I really didn't have any earthly way of knowing that this law ever existed. The Roman emperor Caligula, for instance, used to write new laws in very small letters high up on a wall and then punish people for breaking the rules. It is conceivable that one could go before a magistrate, claim ignorance, and be pleading for mercy and integrity, with integrity. This would be an ignorance that could be considered invincible. Now, let's say, has anybody ever moved from out of state? So let's say, um, all right, Susan, where, where, where did you move from? North Carolina. So you were, did you ever have like a driver's license in North Carolina and then now you have a driver's license for Maryland? Okay, so. Let's say. Okay. Let's say when you got to Maryland, um, you uh, started driving through red lights all over the place. Didn't stop at stop signs. And when the cop pulls you over and he says, uh, you broke the law. You said, I'm sorry, I'm from North Carolina. I didn't know y'all had laws like that up here. <laughs> Driving through a new state, a driver claims ignorance because he didn't know the rule, because she didn't know the rules of the road of that state. Even if it didn't, she didn't know it, the law was plain. Invincible ignorance is an ignorance that could not only could be overcome, but should be overcome. Ignorance is not an excuse for breaking the law. The registration card that I keep in my glove compartment tells me exactly when my renewal was due. There is a sticker on the back of my truck that tells me when my tags expire. It was my duty as the responsible party for that automobile to familiarize myself with its registration expiration date. In the same manner, ignorance... There's no excuse for sin. Bearing in mind, let me give you another picture. I heard a joke this week. Uh, how many drummers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Five. One to handle the light bulb and four to argue about how Neil Peart could have done better. What's that? Okay, yeah, I, I was going to bring that up. One, one to handle the light bulb and four to uh, talk about how Neil Peart could have done it better. If you don't know, Peart, Peart, Neil Peart. For those of you who don't know, Neil Peart is the lyricist and drummer for the rock band Rush. 
aside from admittedly being one of the best drummers in the history of rock and roll, um, he's also an avowed pagan. Last month he wrote a piece for his website that lamented the thought that pagans are criticized for celebrating Christmas. After all, he says, it was ours first. He goes on to say that it is arrogant to suggest that without religion, we have no reason to feel goodwill toward men. It isn't fear of godly punishment or promise of heavenly reward that makes generosity feel good. It's simple humanity. Any undamaged individual knows how good it can feel to help others. Well, is that why you're here this morning? Fear of godly punishment and the promise of heavenly reward. That, that's why you got out of bed this morning. You know, to completely exclude those positions I think would be unbiblical, but is it more than that? Years ago, I had a sociology professor that corrected our class text by insisting that Christianity, along with all other forms of organized religion, are ultimately based on a system of rules. You do A, you get B. If I ask you to name for me a Bible verse that you have memorized, kids, what would be the first one that came to your mind? Genesis 1-1? John 3-16. The second one we said. Okay. So, John 3.16, the second one that we mentioned. What, what does anybody know what John 3.16 says? Excellent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. The first. That seems like it fits our formula, right? If you believe, then you are saved. But I, I love how Eugene Peterson translates the rest of that passage through verse 21. He says, God didn't go through all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without even knowing it. And why? because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran from the darkness, ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so that the work can be seen for the God work it is. Friends, I don't think that God intends us to find life in an if-then statement. See, I don't think he wants us to be caught in the idolatry of rules and regulation. If I go to church, if I say sexually pure, if I walk against wickedness, if I am not malicious, if I don't stab people in the back, if I don't whisper about people behind their back, if I obey my parents, if I forgive, show mercy, use sound judgment, and am trustworthy, then I can be in the in crowd. Then I can be a Christian. Then I can be the church. Then God will love me. Then I won't go to hell. Then I can go to heaven. And then... I taste eternal life. See, I think we need to check and and see if our equations work the other way around. We can say, if I believe, then I am saved. Can we say, if I am saved, then I believe? Not only believe in God, 
but believe him. If I'm bathed in the God light, if I've tasted eternal life, if I have been born again, then malice, envy, sexual immorality, disobedience to authority, gossip, slander, and pride will stand in opposition to the person that God wants me to be. Paul speaks about those who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. This text is convicting not because God likes rules and punishment, not because God likes pointing out our frailty, and not because rules of the road just help to keep us alive, but because love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are the fruit of the Spirit of God that is defining light and life and love in our midst. Friends, we gather here today to do nothing short of remind each other that a new creation is bursting forth right here in the midst of this one, and Jesus is asking, are you in? We gather to remind each other that nothing short of Christ will allow us to ascend the hill of the Lord. It is essential that we remind each other that there is nothing that we can do apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, that will bring favor to God's holiness. It is in human nature that we find a radical corruption that destroys the present world. And it is in Christ alone that we find grace, mercy, salvation, and peace that will now begin a new creation for anyone in Christ. See, the the good news is the announcement of Jesus as the Messiah, the Lord of the world, the announcement of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If we answer that we are in, then that means something needs to be done about our behavior, worse yet, our human condition. Paul's words pierce as he describes our humanity. One commentator said that if we can make it through Paul's entire list without feeling the pangs of conscience, then we're psychopaths. Our text this morning is announcing that God is pouring out his wrath, unveiling his anger toward acts of injustice, greed, deceit. He's calling out those of us that are gossips and slanderers and God-haters, those of us that are arrogant towards authority, self-important and boastful. Goodness, he even accuses us of inventing evil. We're, We're so good at sinning, we keep thinking up new ways to sin. Insert comment about reality television here. He says that we are undeserving, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving and unmerciful she was a thief you got to believe she stole my heart and my cat yeah kendall kendall let me give everyone an even worse <laughs> an even worse indictment is that not only do we practice such things we approve of people that do it many of us need look no further than for proof of that than the music that we listen to, the movies and the television that we watch. On the other side of that coin, though, those same mediums can offer us a vivid picture of that human condition. Uh, Last night, 
my wife and I, we watched The Help. Fantastic movie. We were crying, and oh, it was, uh, it's this movie, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's nominated for um, Best Picture in the Academy Awards this year. We tried to, um, to see all the Academy Award nominees for the, the Oscars, and um, it's about uh, suburban South um, during the Civil Rights Movement. And it is an uh, incredible film about the human condition. Um, what struck me, actually, what I was most convicted at the end of it is the men in the film only play supporting roles at best. And, like, the convicting part that I felt about the film was, like, the, the indictment from the filmmakers was trying to say that you know, it, it wasn't even so much that the men didn't care, although that, that probably did happen. Um, but they just weren't around. They were just, this was all going on around them. They didn't see it. This corruption is a radical concept in our culture today. For many of us, we assume that because the world is obviously full of fallen people, and that, as Paul will later point out, there is no one who does good, no, not one, that God will ultimately go easy on us, right? We either invent a theology that suggests that God will grade on a curve, or we find mercy because, or we may find mercy because our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. I heard the conviction of the person that says with all sincerity of emotion, that on the day of judgment, he will look upon the face of God and claim that he did the best he could with what he had. He will attempt to reconcile his fallen humanity simply by blaming the life given to him by God. God is not going to lower the bar for me or for you. His eternal holiness exists in a state that refuses to allow any blemish. If God compromised his holiness, then he wouldn't be God. It may all be a setup, but it should be painfully true. Three things as we close. First, we need to trust our change to Jesus and to no one else. Have you heard the person that says, well, I I can't come to church? Or worse yet, I can't come to Jesus because I'd burn up. I'd turn to ash. Friends, such lies come straight from the pit of hell. They are saturated not only in the assumption that you are worse off than the rest of us, but that Jesus isn't really Jesus. Such thoughts are not modest, and they are not cute. They are deceitful, and they are toxic. There is not one person in this room today, or outside this room for that matter, that Jesus can't change. He's given us his church He's given us his word. He's given us the beauty of creation around us to remind us that he is alive, he is worthy, and he is willing to point us in the direction of resurrection and new creation. Hopefully, this will mean living more and more with Jesus each day. We need to trust our change to Jesus. And we also need to embrace joy. The process of which God works on our soul will inevitably take the rest of our life. I think in many cases our human condition stands in the way of that joy. 
we would get ourselves out of the way, we would often see that the path before us is a joyful one. The kind of joy that leads us to worship. The kind of joy that leads us to prayer, to our knees, to creativity and progress. In our culture today, we seem to put up on a high pedestal these values of cynicism and sarcasm. Have we considered how those values get in the way of the joy that God would have for us? We need to embrace joy. And finally, we need to trust to hope. You can read ahead, look, glance at the next chapter that Kendall's going to talk about next week. That the next topic is judgment. Judgment's a fantastic thing. That we can trust to hope. I had the privilege a few months ago to have a conversation with a gentleman who asked, uh, we were talking about what the gospel was. And I said, well, I believe that the gospel is the announcement of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And he said, well, I've never heard it put that way before. I've always heard that the gospel is uh, accepting Jesus as your personal savior would get you into heaven. And I said, yeah, I, I, I've tried to think of it a little bit more broadly recently. And he said, that's fantastic. Uh, where does judgment fit in to this idea? Judgment. Judgment. Are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, then judgment is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. Imagine God looking you in the face and you being able to look in the face of God and he judges you. And everything that is corrupt about you, everything that distances you from the character and nature of God removed and what is left is the creation the new creation that has he meant you to be judgment friends is a glorious thing let me pray thanks good father for the faithfulness that you have to this congregation to the struggles that we have through these sins we thank you that we get up in the morning and we face each day and we can feel joy, that we can feel hope, that change is happening, that hope is real, and that even as we struggle with these things, that Jesus, you are making us a new creation. I pray for my friends here as they struggle with these things, that they would see you more clearly and embrace you each day. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.